The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. The company discussed in this episode was a personal investment of the host and no point to the host invest client accounts or advise clients to invest in this company. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. Uh, before we get started, remember, if you want to uh, get more information on us, check us out at our blog, www.accretivewealthpartners.com. We're available anywhere podcasts are available. You can download us, you can subscribe to us. Um, you could also find us at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You could find us at snn.network or on the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash snnwire. Um, <clears throat> hey, we're in, we're in person again. In the same place. Two episodes, two episodes in a row. On two consecutive occasions. Yeah. The, uh, the venue is a little different. We're it's, not at the beach. It's a nice three day here at the beach too. Yeah. Right? Unfortunately, last uh, last week, Gary joined us at the beach and uh, we got rained out. Bummer. Bummer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, between that and the beach and everything else, we missed, uh, we missed a trade. We missed a trade that morning. And uh, but, you know, we've had some good news and some other stuff we've got going on. So we're happy about that. And so sure it's going to be a future episode for you. Uh, before, I think that one will be definitely be for a future episode. <laughs> good, good or bad. Good or bad. We're still, uh, not, still not sure. Still not sure. Uh, to be determined. Before we get started with this uh, story, it, just remember when we're talking about these names, we're just talking about a certain period in time. Uh, this isn't a reflection of the company, whether it's good, bad, indifferent. We're just sharing our version of the story as we saw it, and you know, we're we're recounting our our experience with you. So, with that, uh, you know, when we were thinking about what to talk about this week, we decided to stop beating ourselves up over these. Uh, really tough stories. We'll still bring you in the trenches. We're going to share kind of a success story with you. Uh, it has a we'll lot. Let's call it something that worked. Something that worked. Um, there's a lot of depth to it. We'll try and cover it all. Uh, this was a complicated set of financials. It was a complicated situation. Uh, let's just get started. So what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about a company called uh, MMA Capital. Uh, it used to be called, uh, formerly known as Muni May, but that was a long, long time ago during the time that we got involved. Was it still named Muni May at the time we got involved? And I, I know there was a, they changed the ticker, but I don't know if they changed the name at that time. They might've changed it prior. Yeah. But uh, this is a company that we were involved with for about three years. We've not been involved for over two. And uh, it's sort of somewhat timely in, uh, in the sense that the CEO who Sort of. This is this is a company that had a, a really really big fall and then a slow and gradual sort of uh, rise, like a phoenix out of the ashes of <laughs> of, uh, of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and whatever the heck happened. Uh, and so we we did not get involved until sometime after that. The company was dark for a considerable period of time, uh, meaning that they weren't filing up to date financials, uh, probably for three or four years, and they filed a big restatement all at once. It was like yeah. three or four, three or four years of financials all came out sometime in 2012, 2013. Uh, I think I originally found this because I was reading a write up that somebody had put on the value investors club website. And I always thought it was kind of interesting. And I kind of just kept circling back to it as they were sort of looking to go current like uplist. Uh, there's uh, uplist to an exchange because I think they went to the over the counter market for a time. Mm -hmm. um, 
And as we got into it, I was sort of... What did Muni May do? How did the blow up happen? So the, the, how the blow up happened, I'm, not, I'm still not exactly 100% clear on because they were doing, uh, basically it was, an, it was an income-oriented dividend stock for people who were sort of income-oriented investors. And basically they, they had a whole portfolio of low-income housing tax credit okay. bonds and they were financing low-income housing projects and doing all that sort of stuff and paying a big dividend to do so. And uh, there were some accounting issues and things like that. And, you know, basically the whole thing just in, just imploded over the course of, I don't, I don't remember what the time period was, but by the time we got involved, a lot of that was in the past. They spent several hundred million dollars on a complete restatement of their financials. Uh, it has a big NOL as a result of that. So yeah. last episode, we talked to Stephen Keel, we talked about NOL vehicles. You know, we made the point that a good NOL is, is only worth what the plan to use it is, or it's only as good as the plan to use it. Um, this is uh, one where they had a sizable uh, NOL, but uh, that was not actually, it was part of the thesis, but it, it actually did not wind up playing that material of a role in the thesis. I think mm -hmm. the only thing that it did was um, put, some, put some limitations on changes in control, which sort of helped outside shareholders realize more value as sort of Falcone, the CEO Falcone put sort of put put back the pieces, and so um, the, this company was dark for so long that all they had all these assets and things, these projects that they financed, and all this other stuff. And uh, during that period of time, they marked all this stuff down on the balance sheet to to crisis level prices, and sort of they were they were buried inside equity method investments and uh, you know all sorts of things 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 like that. And so you know I sort of circled back to this one. I remember we sat down, we, had, we were having dinner and I just did a, I, I sort of read through their financials. I had all these questions because the financials were really complicated. We sat down, we were having dinner. I said, you got to take a look at this thing. And I'm like, it's, and like, how did I describe it? Like, I can't, it, was it just, just, it's a grab bag of assets in a mismarked balance sheet. Yeah. It was in, a, your, in your opinion, that's what it was. Yeah. In my opinion at the time, they had all these assets, they had these liabilities and, and it was this, just this, this, this complicated all sorts of complicated accounting. And I had looked at uh, sort of light, light tech funds, uh, low income housing tax credit funds. They, they, they sort of exist um, for a couple different reasons. One of which is for, for banks to be able to get credits for their, for uh, what is it? Um, the Community Reinvestment Act. And sometimes uh, higher net worth investors will, will, will go, go into these th things too for tax purposes and that right. sort of thing. So I was sort of familiar with how those worked. Um, not super intimately familiar, but then there were all these other other things that were going on there. And so um, when we got into it, you know, they had this stated uh, book value per share and I went through their balance sheet and, you know, there were all these different things. There was there was a whole bunch of land that was buried in there at, at some sort of markdown crisis level price because, um, you know, from an accounting perspective, you either carry land at historical cost or a markdown cost. You're not allowed to mark it back up until there's a transaction. So right. they marked it down in the crisis and it was, and it was, it was, significantly below market and it was land that had significant value pre-crisis and so we got further and further away from the crisis part of the idea was maybe that land would regain some value as well right. because pre pre-crisis there are proposals on this land to redevelop it into which should have made it significantly more valuable than, yeah than where but, the but there were other things there was a prefer that they had in in some mortgage lender that was still money good mm -hmm. uh, or so it appeared and they had marked that down quite a two um and they, they actually served as collateral for something else um, and then they had a whole bunch of the way these housing credit funds work, the manager would have to guarantee uh, the credits for the investors. 
Uh, and if they didn't satisfy certain requirements, those credits could be called back. And so there was there were certain there were certain revenue that they booked and cash they carried on the balance sheet that had a full liability against it. That you know you really had to screw up. In our opinion, from what we understood, you had to screw up pretty badly for the to, in order to have to make good on those on those on those guarantees mm -hmm. uh, uh, with these with these developments that they, that they were running. Um, so there was that. So they had they had re they had deferred revenue liability that was very sizable that was actually just going to bleed down and accrete accrete into book value over time. Uh, you know, and then there were starting some new ventures and there were a few other things that happened along the way. But I think that's basically where we started. And it was between that and then there was a big uh, NOL about that was worth about four hundred million dollars. And at the time, this was what an eighty or ninety million dollar market cap company, right? And, um, and so just I mean, I think it's important to keep that in mind is they did, I don't remember if it was a nine figure restatement or eight figure, but anyway, it was a massive restatement relative, accounting restatement relative to the market cap of the company. And so I think they did everything they possibly could to avoid a bankruptcy situation, the great recession, just so they can emerge very clean and they could have more surprises on the upside than the downside. Yeah, and we'll get to this later, but in the midst of this, the CEO and the CFO came to own a lot of stock through open market purchases that they made, but also some option packages that they got in the midst of it. And so, um, but we'll, we'll get to that. And then, uh, you know, at the time we were involved, one thing that really struck us was they were actually, um, you know, the, the, the company was trading at a, a decent discount to its stated book value. We thought the actual book value was actually quite a, a, quite a good deal higher. And sort of at that point, we decided to get involved, and 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 partly we got involved for two reasons. One was we saw that the company was actually they put a buyback plan in place, and they were actually acting on it. Now we see lots of companies put buyback plans in place, and they're just oftentimes they're just for show. They don't actually do anything about it. This is a company that was actively buying in ten percent of its float every year, yep. at least while we were involved, or yep. just under 10% of its float every year. Right. But on top of that, we had um, the CEO and the CFO, or effectively the CFO, um, out there in the market buying back stock every week. And so we'd see these Form 4s, which is the form that you file when there's an insider purchase, come through twice a week for these guys for months on end. And no one actually looked like it was significant in its own right. But when you added them all together, it, it added up to what we thought was basically over 100% of their after-tax <laughs> compensation. So they were getting cash compensation for the company, and we you thought- You didn't get to buy back stock. Yeah, we, thought, we, thought, they, we thought that they were buying over 100% over of their, comp, they were putting more money in than they were collecting after taxes and using it to buy back stock, which to us was, we thought that was a pretty significant so you, tell. You had the schedule down pat. You knew when the company was going to be in the market and when the, uh, when, when the, when the, when the insiders were going to be in the market. So what were the days? So the comp the company was allowed to be in the market Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And the insiders were allowed to be in the, in the market Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yep. And so we would, and, and like, and so the stock was not very actively traded at the time. I don't think it's actively traded that much right now, uh, quite frankly, but um, you know, we could see what was going on out there. And the odd thing about this company was the, as the company itself told you the price at which they were willing to go buy back stock in the market. And it was always some, some it was up to like 85% of the book for the longest time. And because quarter to quarter, we could follow this thing. Um, 
we thought we thought we had some beat on what we knew what stated value was because they told you in their in their financials. We had some we thought we had some beat on what um, the actual value was, and then quarter to quarter it was sort of just a process of having that unfold. And so we think to ourselves, okay, well, you know, we think that the actual the stated book value is going to go up again this quarter. We know that we think that the company is going to be in a position to be buying back stock at at least eighty five percent of that. And so it was sort of just like a, it was almost a math exercise. Uh, it, it was kind of like Christmas came four times a year, but you always knew what you were going to get under the tree or you had a good idea of what was under the tree. And yeah. so they would drop the quarterly report at just some random day. They would hold a conference call two days later, three days later, three days later. And we always kind of knew we had a good idea where book value was going to be. We had a good idea how much it was going to increase. And we had a good idea of, where they're going to buy up to. And so this just kind of progressed for years, years. <laughs> just years. And yeah, just years. And um, I think we went to one of the shareholder meetings. It was in Maryland. How many people were there? It was you, me, a friend that we invited, a friend that we invited and, and one local like Morgan Stanley broker who was there for <clears throat> the free diet Cokes or something. Uh, and that was it. Um, and so they did management did their kind of presentation. We stuck around. Uh, our friend just kind of observed the questions uh, that we would ask afterwards, and they were great. I mean, they they knew what, it felt like they knew what they were doing. They were good capital allocators. They kind of I don't know how you would describe it. Um, they knew the transition that their business was going through, and they knew where things were being carried at. And I think they had a rough idea of what they were worth today and how that kind of progressed throughout time. Yeah, so what we came to appreciate over the front time was they were investors in the, in the bonds that, under, under, that were underneath these properties that they, they, they developed. But they were also the general, the GP to an LP that was an investor in the property. And so as, as part of the idea was as this unwound over time, um, there are big promotes on the back end for the managers of these things. And so I, they, I don't know, was it a couple hundred of them? I forget how many yeah, it was a lot, point. but there were, there were a number of these <clears> things. Um, and so we sort of, the bonds actually amortized over time, the property values, you know, they had value. Um, and as they sort of unwound these funds, they were basically, you know, I think they were 20 year vintages is yep. what is the way that they worked. And so they all did these in like 2005, 2006, 2004, 2003, and they were all going to get unwound probably Probably now they're in the process of getting some of them. The first, some of the first ones that they did are probably in the process of getting unwound mm -hmm. over the next couple of years. They were going to have, in our view, some fairly big incentive fees start to flow through their income statement. Uh, and so, you know, it's so it's kind of weird. They had this long period where they were dark. They marked a lot of things down. Their balance sheet was opaque as it is anyway. And as we went on with this quarter to quarter, they sort of kept finding assets to sell that we didn't know that they had. And you know they were book uh, you know a couple million dollars here, a couple million dollars there, and and it was just sort of this book value, you know we kind of called it a strip tease, you know like they every quarter they sort of just showed us more assets, and <laughs> it was it, it was just something that we look looked forward to, but like it was it was kind of a thing where like you know they went dark for so so long and they buried all these they buried all these bodies and it was just a process of going around and digging them up quarter by quarter. And meanwhile, you have, you know, the CEO and the CFO out there buying stock hand over fist. The company is buying stock hand over fist. And they have the, and, and that's sort of what we were observing. 
And then other stuff started to happen. So like they, they engaged in this, we, we got involved in more heavy way uh, when they engaged in this transaction. I think it was the purpose of it was to sell some of the asset heavy stuff to a third party that they'd previously worked with. Right. But they had an option to buy it back and there were some guarantee fees involved. Right. And when we did the math on this transaction, um, first of all, they didn't, they structured it in such a way that they didn't achieve sale accounting on it, which means that these assets effectively just stayed on their balance sheet. So they didn't move anywhere, but they were entitled to, the, the company was entitled to all this money over time. And so we were looking at that and like, okay, you know, like there's more to this. And what else, what else about it? There's, uh, what else am I forgetting about that? That, that was the more, that was the MGM Morrison, Morrison Morrison Grove. Yeah. That happened pretty early on. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say what I always found interesting about their quarterly reports was every time I read them, I always found something new. I've yeah. never missed so many things that were just right in front of my face and plain black and white. And so we're talking about this carrying value versus fair value. They disclosed all of this. This was in their financials. I it mean, is. they, they had their liabilities, what they're carrying it with at and what they estimated fair value to be. And they always made pretty good on what the fair value was. Yeah, and, and the balance sheet looked pretty levered, but it wasn't as levered as it first as it first appeared because the, they had debt on the balance sheet, but, but that was tied to properties. Right. And um, the debt was actually very, very low cost. And this took me maybe six months to kind of realize maybe uh, I was reading through their financials and they started to retire some of this debt at um, prices that were well below the carrying value of mm -hmm. the debt. Meaning, uh, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were significantly below the carrying value of the debt. And so then I started looking at the debt stack and it dawned on me that, you know, they had these amortizing loans that they were renegotiating. Um, and it was a lot of money, it, it was for a, a, a significant amount of money. And it was all at LIBOR plus 200. And, you know, LIBOR at the time was very, it's similar to today's environment. Um, and they couldn't, in my estimation, they, they, they couldn't borrow today at anything near that. And when I, we looked at it, they actually told you uh, what they thought the fair value of the debt was. And it was a fraction of what the carrying value was. And when, that, when it dawned on me that this was 20-year debt at LIBOR plus two, um, then you know, that has actual significant economic value, which was also not really reflected in the, in, in the, in the book value. Yeah. And so it, you know, if, they're, if they're going out there and they're engaging in projects that I'm making numbers up at five, 10, or 10, 12, 15% returns, uh, or so they thought, and their cost of funding was 3%, like for 20 years, that's a pretty good spread that you can, that you can, um, your economic reality is, looks a little bit different. And so, um, you know, I, you're right in that every time we had to read the financials, we would discover something more. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I, I frequently had to read the queue two, three, four times. Right just to sort of get my head around all the puts and takes, build some new estimate of what the, what we thought NAV was. Um, the subsequent events tease out some of the significance of those. And it was sort of, it was like an exercise in sort of, I'm not gonna call it forensic accounting, but it was definitely an in-depth, in we were getting very, very familiar with various accounting topics that you don't normally get familiar with. And that's actually something that's helped us tremendously as we've gone through and looked at other companies. Right. And so we saw this debt that's mismarked. Okay. Well, you know, we're involved in a situation now where, you know, there's a company that has a giant preferred and it looks like it's worth something, but we think it's actually just worth a couple hundred thousand shares of stock. Right. And, you know, we're not going to name that company today, but 
that's what we think. And like we took that, we took the lesson from here and we were able to apply it to some other places and hopefully that we have a, a similar type of success story with that one. We don't, we still don't know, but, um, but that's what we think. Right? Yeah. And so it also, so maybe after the first year or so, it became clear to us that this was going to, that they're trying to transition from what would be a balance sheet story to an income statement story. So they're trying to transition this opaque value on the balance sheet, make it clear for investors to understand, and then transition it to an income statement story. And what I mean by that is they wanted to start being more asset managers. They wanted to collect asset management fees where you can get an asset management multiple on the income. Um, and, that, and that started uh, our, sort of our, our thinking on this sort of tilted from a um, book value, NAV, share repurchase story, um, mismarked balance sheet, all of those things were still true. But our thinking on it started to transition sometime around the, uh, when the GE deal. Right. So um, when GE was winding down GE Financial, um, somehow these guys got in on the, GE had a big portfolio of low-income housing, uh, low-income low housing. They, I think they did some mortgage origination. I think they needed some community reinvestment act credits. And they had a big portfolio of this stuff and they were getting out. And it was all legacy stuff. And I think these guys might have had some hand in putting it together, mm -hmm. which is why I think they had the inside track on bidding on it. Right. And so they basically bid on the assets and found a buyer for the LPs in, uh, in another company. And, you know, it dawned on us that they're just looking to be the asset manager on this thing, get, get sort of promotes on the back end. And the way the GE transaction occurred, that was also not consolidated. So all of this stuff was basically through uh, equity method investments. And the way equity method investments work is, you know, you carry them on your balance sheet and the P&L from the venture sort of flows through over time. And they didn't put up any money. So these things didn't really have any real carrying value. So the, this was yet another situation where you'd have stuff start flowing through the income statement and appear on the balance sheet over time. And right. so, um, but it became, I think, fairly clear to us that, um, that they were trying to transition from just being a balance sheet story to having this income statement story with the asset manager. Then they also started doing, probably around the same time they started doing the solar loans. Before we go too much into the other ventures, like why don't we talk about just like some of the calls and trying to figure out and tease out, you know, like what might be coming in over time and how. Right. Because I feel like we got on these quarterly calls with them and like it's, you know, I alluded to the fact that like there was all this, these assets hitting the balance sheet at various times and whatever. But if you got on the call and asked them the questions, they would very, transparently answer the questions. Yep. Um, but you just had to know what questions to ask. And since there were no publicly traded peers that did the same things or anything like this, there was no analyst coverage to follow it. I mean, the first call that I got onto, I mentioned this was a dividend payer. The first call I got onto with this thing, I'm looking at this thing going, okay, you know, book value's here. That's the stated book value. We think our estimate of book value is here. Um, you know, they're buying in all this stock. The first call I got on, the guy before me was asking about his dividend check, when he was going to get his dividends. And I got on and asked them, like, if they're going to be, you know, are they are they going to be able to keep continuing doing the doing share buyback, the share buyback. And, <laughs> and then the guy after me got on and asked about a special dividend. And so it was like their, their investor base at the time we got involved was not not the most sophisticated lot. And it be, but it became more sophisticated, I think, over time because, you know, our, our previous guest on the podcast, I think is a big shareholder of this. And the guy that he mentioned to me on that podcast, I think is, was a big shareholder. I don't know if he still is. I haven't asked in some time, yeah. um, you know, and 
you know, this, this one was pretty, pretty easy to misunderstand. Um, yeah. And so let's, so, so the shareholder base needed to turn over and become a little bit more sophisticated. Um, and then I would say that, um, you know, the story had to sort of transition into something that new shareholders could understand. Right. So now, now you want to talk about the ships of the solar lending? Let's talk about solar lending. I'm, I'm, not, a, <laughs> I'm not a big the fan of, in your of, side of, of solar story. lending. <laughs> solar lending. Yeah. I think when they announced that that was going to be their new venture, we just kind of felt a little disappointed. Um, we knew they wanted to be asset managers. We knew they wanted an asset management fee and they wanted to run more things through the income statement so they can get an income statement multiple. This is the way they're going to do it. Solar lending. Yeah, and like uh, when they got started with it, I really, I mean, in my mind, when they got started with this, solar was like airlines, and that you know, if you added up all the capital that went into solar, that over the years it essentially went up in flames, um, and and so like I was, you know, perhaps a little bit, uh, a little bit, I was negative on it, maybe perhaps a little bit too negative on it, but maybe not. I mean, they did have a, a lesson they learned along the way with it. Um, weren't they we'll talk about that a little later but they were we noticed they were hiring all these people for this thing called mma energy and they'd previously had sort of a solar lending venture um prior to the the 2008-2009 crisis and they still had i think a couple small funds hanging around on their balance yeah. sheet as a result of that so we knew it was an interest of theirs um you know as they ramped it up one of my biggest concerns was that they were going to you know, they were really looking to raise outside capital and then charge fees against it, which actually I think they were pretty, they were pretty successful in, in getting that started. So it actually did seem like there was capital available to manage. What I was a little worried about was the capital that you'd have to sit invest alongside of it as like a co-investment because people, and a lot of times in these businesses, they want the manager to have skin in the game via some form of a co-investment, meaning like you're not, we're not just going to let you manage the money. We want your money at risk too. And so that's, it's typically how how it happened. They had all they had that in, in the light tech business with, you know, some small LP interests that they retained, yep. um, which we weren't terribly concerned about. And then with this, and so part of our concern was they were putting up a decent amount of co-investment because they thought it was getting you know pretty good yields and their borrowing costs were pretty low. And that and all that was true. What we were suspicious of was that, um, you know, it would remain such a nice environment for this type of thing and. Um, you know, you can have all kinds of things happen. Solar is the kind of thing that have all kinds of things happen to it. Sub government subsidies go away and, you know, those types of things. And, you know, but at, I mean, at this point, like, uh, you know, it was already working and Falcone, the CEO had already built up, I think a pretty good amount of goodwill with us. We, we felt like it was his, he, he had a significant stake in the company. He owned like, I think over a million shares mm -hmm. on a share count of six, 7 million. So he was a significant shareholder in this thing. And, what we find, you know, going back to maybe what Peter's story is, when people have their own money at risk, they 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 treat it like they've got money at risk. And he didn't really own. I, I don't think he owned a lot of the stock pre two thousand eight, but he came to own a lot of it post. Right. And so, um, so we still we still felt okay enough about that. Um, and they and we were surprised. I I know I was surprised that they were finding so much capital available to manage in the space. Weren't, didn't that kind of surprise you? Yeah, yeah, they didn't have, it didn't seem like they had much trouble finding capital to manage in the space. Um, I would also say it was right around this time. So we, we had figured out they wanted to transition from a balance sheet story to an income statement story. Um, 
I think we also started to do the math on what these buybacks would accrete the book value at and the EPS at. Uh, and you start looking out three, five, 10 years and you start to come up with some pretty high share prices. I mean, we, this, we had some initial targets based on the adjustments that we were making to the balance sheet. They always found new assets to sell. Um, yeah, we, we thought the value, we thought this would make its way into the shareholders equity over maybe a decade and right. that these guys were paying a very, very long game and that the stock that they were buying back today, maybe they're buying it at 85% of stated book at one time. I think that bumped up to book at a later, was it book or just slightly below book? Yeah, it was, it was like 90, 10%. maybe 95% of book, 90% of book. It, they bumped it up at some point because they were having a hard time getting fills at 85% of book. So they bumped it a little higher. And while we thought that they were buying it back at a substantial book value represented a substantial discount to what we thought the value was at that moment, it also represented to us what we thought a substantial discount to what it would be five, six, seven, ten years out. And so maybe they were buying the buyback program just to pull numbers out of the air. If they were buying a dollar for 50 cents in the present, it was actually they were spending a dollar to go buy five future dollars or you know something to that effect and if they could take the 10 if, if they could take the share count 10 percent down 10 percent a year by the time they got there you know the shareholders equity could be a fairly big number and maybe the share count could be in half and so when you start you start to do the math on that and you and you, and you get to numbers that don't make a lot of sense and sort of the idea like you, you sort of want to try to buy more and but you don't want to tell anybody about it because you don't want to ruin the buyback program that they have in place because so it's this weird dance of, you know, we got to kind of play the long game with them. And so that's, that's what we did. And I think one of the hardest things for me to do personally, I don't know about you, was just sitting back and letting it happen. Yeah. Um, Cause it slowly, it slowly got to be a decent sized position and a bigger position, like, and to, to the point where I think it was our biggest position. Right. And, and it's, I mean, you kind of knew somewhat reliably what was going to happen throughout the year and through all the new quarterly releases. But then you look around the opportunities that you're always looking at new ideas and you think, well, you know, is there an opportunity cost to me being allocated here versus somewhere else? But when you ran out the numbers, I mean, the decision was really clear. I should. It was, just, it was really easy. Just do nothing. Just do nothing. Just yeah. let it happen and do nothing. Um, it wasn't very sexy, but. <laughs> it was the right thing to do. I mean, analogies <laughs> to a strip tease aside, it was not very sexy. Uh, so, it, but it was, it was, uh, you know, it was the, it, it, but it was good in the sense that we trusted the people that were running it. We felt like we had a good idea of what was going on. Uh, we felt like we knew it better than practically anybody else that was involved in it. Right. Um, we we knew quite. We were we we were able to find out quite a bit about the assets themselves, even if they weren't carried on the balance sheet from old filings, old transcripts, other things like that. We could actually follow some of the land investments pretty closely. Mm -hmm. So like there was a big one down in Savannah, Georgia, and the whole town was wondering what the heck was going to happen with this 60 something acre development that at one time was worth a lot of money and was being carried at a very low price. You know, we were able to follow developments with stuff like that. We'd be able to see, okay, this property that they owned in Virginia looks like something happened there this quarter. Maybe they sold it. Um, is that going to come back into the balance sheet or you know, make its way through the income statement onto the balance sheet? 
And so like we were able to know things about that because we were able to really research it deeply. We, we felt like we knew it better than everybody else. And I say for things like that, I mean, just setting up simple Google alerts for keywords. So you get emails pushed out to you as news hits the wire. Uh, that's really helpful. Um, it gives you an edge. You're the first one to know about some of this stuff. So I just tip the people. And, and, and like there's in our, in our view, there's three sources of advantage in, in markets. Most people would boil them down to one is behavioral acting differently than other people. And that's really just your, your constitution, how you're made up as a person. Um, and we we tend to be longer term oriented in nature. So generally speaking, I would say that um, we don't do this type of stuff for anybody else. So we're only answering to ourselves. So we have the advantage of not having somebody saying, Hey, you own this thing, what happened uh, for these particular things. And so we can act differently. So this one, this other one where we took the preferred lesson, you know, that one's been a long journey, a lot of up and down to it. Um, we've got some friends that are involved that have outside shareholder, outside clients that they, that, that they have to answer to. We don't, so we can think and act and behave differently with that. And that's an advantage. Sometimes there's an analytical advantage. I think in this instance, we probably did have one because yeah. we got super familiar with the accounting, the puts and takes, the liabilities that were actually going to be assets at some point, all of those sorts of things. Um, and then there's an informational advantage, which is rarely legal. Um, but in this instance, um, because we knew we were able to dig up so much about the assets and what had been there and what we still believe to be there, and we were able to follow it more closely, um, we actually, at various times throughout this, that felt like because we were able to follow what was going on in and around this and find things in the public domain that nobody else knew to look for, that was actually a source of informational advantage that, um, that uh, and because this, this company was generally pretty small, nobody cared about it, we didn't have a lot of competition. And right. so, you know, when we got on that first call, um, you know, the guys asking, acting about the dividend, asking about their dividend checks, you know, I'm a big fan of going where the competition is the weakest. Sure. If I want to win a basketball game, I don't want to play against LeBron James. I want to play against a, a class of fifth graders because I'll beat them. And so this, it, it, and we hope, <laughs> I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would beat five-year-old LeBron, LeBron James, but I think if you drop me in the average elementary school, I'm pretty sure I could, I'm pretty sure I could take them. Like it's been a little while, but you know, I think, I think I could, I think I could do that. And that's what you, and that's what you have with, with this. And so, um, so, so it was about this time. Is there anything else? I'm going to, I'm going to steer us down the path of wrapping this. Are you going to land? You're going to land the plane. I'm going to land the plane. Okay. Is there anything else that we're missing before we start the landing? No, I think that um, in terms of the journey, it, you know, we, it was sort of the kind of thing uh, where we learned a lot along the way and we were really, really optimistic about the buyback program. We were, we were I was looking forward to owning this for five years or more. Um, and we've been out of it for two years. So obviously that didn't happen. You're, you make the natural question in a listener's mind might be, well, well, what happened? And Eric, what happened? <laughs> so, yep, let's, let's start the landing process. Uh, yeah. So it was about this time that we had this realization of, of what this could be over the next five to 10 years. It was early in 2018, 2018. Yep. The, 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 Fourth quarter, the third quarter call of 2019 happened in mid-November. Right. And I remember I'd asked a question about buying back stock and some things like that. And I, and I got sort of a different answer than I'd gotten previously. It wasn't that they were going to stop doing it, but it was really, there was some, some hedging language that might've been, that might've been in there and used. And there was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And they kind of intimated that sometime they might be an issuer of stock. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird too. 
And so it didn't do anything, but that was kind of weird. And so with that as background, what happened in, in uh, early so, the following year? So in January 2018, they announced a deal with Hunt. Uh, it basically took all the great parts of the business that we liked. We shouldn't say it quite that way. In our opinion, we, we, yeah, we, it, wanted, to, we wanted to own an income statement story Yep, and we wanted. This is a pile of. There's a, there was an asset heavy part of it, and we felt like they were transitioning to an asset light asset manager. Right. And so, what what did they do with the hunt deal? Uh, so they sold it all off. I mean, they sold most of it off. They got a bunch of cash for that. Uh, the MGM option that you talked about earlier that transitioned to hunt. So we thought that that was going to be a big source of value in the future, um, and. Let's see. They issued a bunch of stock to hunt at thirty something. It was it was a high. It was, it was a, a high, it, was, it was a price that was significantly higher, higher than the price than that it traded the day before. Right. And so they issued all this stock. Um, we thought that people were probably going to anchor to the price that Hunt bought, just bought shares at. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our mind, you know, we talked about uh, in one of our previous podcasts owning something that's externally advised. Well, this entity that we really we we liked the asset management story that this was transitioning to. Somebody just bought the external, bought the advisor and it became an externally advised yes. thing. And so in our mind, this sort of transitioned from something that might become an income statement story to something that maybe um, was something different than that. And we didn't, we, we were hesitant about being on the other end of an externally advised entity because I think the incentives, how would those shift? <laughs> Yeah, so the incentives no longer stayed with me. It was with the advisor. And so I, I, was, I wanted to hold this for the next five to 10 years to see what would happen in its current form. And when this shift occurred, I didn't know exactly what I owned anymore. Uh, I knew some of the assets that I was very comfortable with. I no longer owned. I was no longer be a participant in. And so I just wasn't comfortable with and for better, I mean, it's just my own ignorance at the time that I just, I wasn't quite sure what I had left and what I owned and whether or not that that's what I wanted to own. And so for me, um, yeah, I think we felt like people were going to anchor the next morning to the price that Hunt was issued shares at. Um, well, the price they were buying stock at, and, sure. And, and they largely were. That, 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 that did happen the following morning and, and, and sort of in our mind, you know, that that was probably still a discount in our mind to what this, the, there was the stated book value. Um, and then there was um, sort of our estimate of what we thought NAV was, and it was still a, it was still a discount for a variety of reasons, but those reasons to us, once they, once they sold the advisor, didn't matter anymore. And so um, a lot of the, we, in our mind, externally advised entities, um, the best version of them tend to trade around the, the net asset value. Um, ones where, you know, that relationship is a little bit more conflicted. Um, and we don't know, it wasn't our view that this was the case here or not, but, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily tend to be the case. So, you know, it became, so, what we were really interested in was the buyback program. We felt like that would not be as strong going forward. Um, the uh, the uh, advisory fees from the income statement, those were no longer going to be there. And we thought there could be a version of this in the future where, Maybe they spun out the assets and retained the and the manager stayed public. Mm-hmm. Like that, we would have been very interested in. In that instance, we probably would have bought sold the assets to buy back and 
to buy the manager to buy the manager and we just had the manager sold uh, you know to a, a, another party which is fine i mean like that's they made a business decision to do that um and we don't we don't begrudge any of that but at that point our reasons for owning it had changed significantly and and that was sort of it for us yeah and i think uh i think we've mentioned this before on another episode is probably going to be a common theme for a lot of ideas you know, sometimes in the morning when news hits you that morning or the day before the first price that you get is it might be the best price and so yeah, and we, we had no idea we thought that maybe we we didn't know but we thought that um there was a good chance people anchored to that price and in our mind that was not such a bad place to call it a day and yep. it, this was one that worked um we we held it for several years we did very well we learned a lot um we there were a lot of lessons along the way. The lessons were very valuable. The lessons I think we were able to apply to other situations. And, um, you know, we thought uh, some of the lessons were worth, worth sharing. Um, you know, we don't have any view on it, it now. Um, the most recent thing that happened was, you know, yesterday the CEO that we liked, he, he left. Um, and we, he, we thought he did a great job, particularly during the time that we were involved. And yep. we, wish, we wish him nothing but the best and yep. hope that, uh, Hope to find something else. Uh, hope to find some other version of this one day. Um, yep. So, anything else? No, I think that's it. I think you landed the plane. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, so, thanks for joining us. Remember, uh, if you want to check out more information, check out our blog, www.accretivewealthpartners.com. Download the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, wherever podcasts are available. Also, check us out on inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com or at snn.network or on the SNN YouTube channel, youtube.com slash snnwire. I think that's a wrap for today. That's a wrap. And if uh, you've got one of these stories that you'd like to share, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. We have guests and, uh, and uh, rate and review us. It, it helps a lot. All right. Thanks so much, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.